dealing with people. Nothing gets done in a plant without working with the operators, you know, the, the service guys, the maintenance guys. You learn skills. Those things have been foundations that have helped me been successful all the way through my career. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? It's episode 130. Today, we're talking about software-enabled vehicles and the future of automotive manufacturing. Our guest this week is Vicky Papani. Vicky is a vice president and automotive industry advisor at Salesforce, but she spent a long time in the auto industry before jumping over to the software world. Prior to Salesforce, she actually retired from Honda, where she helped lead their digital transformation efforts. We'll get into that and more in today's episode, and this actually isn't the first time we featured Salesforce on this show. About 80 episodes ago, we discussed some of their findings in a state of manufacturing report that they put out, and now we're bringing them back to discuss some findings from their recent Trends in Automotive report. But whether you're in the automotive industry or a completely different vertical in manufacturing, you'll want to listen to this episode. So, here are three things you can expect from today's show. First, we'll hear about Vicky's background. Now, she didn't start in the automotive industry, but we'll hear how she got there and what the industry has taught her. Second, we're going to talk about the connected car and what that means for both consumers and those in the automotive manufacturing ecosystem. Finally, we dive into Salesforce's Trends in Automotive report and some of its key takeaways. As always, if you want to learn more, if you want to access that full report, you can do that by going to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 130. That'll take you to the show notes page for today's episode, episode 130. And hey, if you're enjoying the show, if you enjoy this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review over at iTunes or Spotify. You can leave a short review on iTunes, Spotify, it's simply hitting that five-star button either way. Hit that five-star review button. It definitely helps. Put the show on the map. Get the word out. All those good things. So, hey, thank you in advance if you take the time to do that. And with that, hey, that's a short intro for this week. It's time to meet up with Vicky Papani. Vicky, welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour. And the only way to start this interview is to say... Hey, if we were talking cars and software over a beverage, where would that be? Paint the picture for us. All right, Chris, here's the picture. I live in uh, Los Angeles County, um, Palos Verdes, and there's a wonderful area in San Pedro, which is part of L.A., that is right next to the ports. And there's this wonderful little French bistro called Campagnon Wine Bistro, and it's just delightful. I think you and I would be sitting at the bar with a glass of wine um, or your choice, and I think we were just chatting there. So, in fact, I was just there last night. So I think this will be fun. So that's what we're doing. All right. Well, uh, you know, just a preview to what's to come then. Let's say we're there. We're sitting at that French bistro. We're drinking some wine. You know, what What in the world is a connected car? And like, what's a software-enabled vehicle, right? Can you paint a general picture like in one minute as if we're having that drink with one another? Yeah, I think I can. I think what I'd say is a connected car is people are already experiencing it today. If you have a relatively new car that has XM XM radio or you have SOS services. So it's just the ability to be able to, on steroids, sending information back and forth from the car to the OEM and then the OEM talking to the car and basically the customer in the car. So that's what a connected vehicle is. Um, it's basically the software-enabled vehicle is really, the vehicles become like a computer on wheels. And so this just enables us, uh, an OEM, to talk back and forth. Absolutely. That's the perfect way to start off a, a conversation between sips of Syrah or a uh, uh, French wine, if you will. Um, so we're going to dive into that a little bit later in the conversation. But you have your own fascinating story in this industry as well. And in fact, before you even were in the automotive world, you were in pulp and paper. You know, tell us, how did you get into that industry? Where where, and when was this and how 
did that experience start? Yeah, now you're going to have me dating myself, Chris, but that's okay. I grew up in Philadelphia, um, and Philadelphia at that time was a big refining industry, lots of refineries around that. So I graduated from Drexel University with a degree in chemical engineering um, in 1984. And I thought, great, I'm going to go out into the, you know, into the, uh, the world of, you know, uh, basically refining. And what happened was it was a recession. So where there was great jobs the year before, everybody was getting you know, signing bonuses. There was nothing to be had there. And so in the Philadelphia area, there's a pulp and paper company. It was Scott Paper, a paper mill right on the Delaware River. Like anybody else, I went in and put in an application. I got called. And that's how I ended up in pulp and paper. It wasn't an integrated mill, so no pulp, um, but basically a paper mill. So that's how I got there. And and there's there was a story we were talking about when we were first getting to know one another about when technology was first entering that mill. You know, tell tell us the story. What was it like when the first computer came in the door at that mill? And and maybe we can reflect on where we are now relative to that experience as well. It's great. It was the funniest thing when I look back at that. It was the first time like um that desktops were coming into the, you know, into businesses. So I will never forget, I was a young process engineer. Maybe I was a year, I don't know, a year and a half out of college. And they brought in these desktops and they put them there. And I worked for a technical director. And it was the funniest thing. People were afraid of that technology. I remember the technical director, who was at least, you know, 20 years older than me, was afraid to even play with the Excel. He literally would sit behind me and say, make the graph do this, make the graph do this. So it was a crazy thing. And um, for, for people that are younger, I, I even remember the first portable computers, you know, um, but you had to use like a luggage, luggage carrier even for those portable things. And so now you think about it today, the technology is so far advanced. I mean, in your calculators, you have more technology and capability in than these old computers. But you think now about all the technology that's driving everything, like our shopping experiences, you know, controllers of our home, our cars, in AI real time. It's just amazing to see that transformation. Now, it's been a while, right? That's probably like 35 years. But the speed of that change, it is so cool because things that people only dreamed about doing and like analysis and all that kind of stuff, years ago can be done in seconds now. It, it's very cool. You know, another question that popped into mind as you started that answer was how you were sharing that people in the plant were afraid of that technology, right? And I think it's very timely. We have a lot of technologies out now that you could describe people being afraid of, right? AI, all the way things are connected now. I'm curious to get your opinion. Do you think that's something that is it the same now? Is it different now? Because I feel like while the technology continues to evolve and the technologies are newer, I, I feel like maybe I sense that some of that same fear is still there when something new comes about. This is a, a world according to Vicky question, but I'm curious what, what your take on that as someone that has seen you know, all these technologies come out over decades. Yeah, I think that that I think it's human nature to be afraid of something new. But I think it's also generational, right? It's just like, um, like uh, I have a 19-year-old daughter, all right? So she's a Gen Z and she has no fear of technology. Like, like I'm afraid because I also, because she hasn't bought her iPhone or she didn't buy her computers. So she has none of those fears like I'm going to break it, right? And I watch her about how, how fast she is and trying things and, and it's okay for failure. Whereas myself as a much older person, I'm still uncomfortable with that and a little bit afraid of that, right? So I don't dive in. So I think that that's just um, a human nature piece as technology evolves. I think younger people adapt to it easier because as you're older or whatever, you know, whether it's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you've already figured out how to do things your own way and it's hard to shift. So I think in organizations, particularly the adoption of technologies, especially current technology, is you have to have people that are um, willing to be courageous. You also have to have young people who will embrace it. And then you have the people that are typically in leadership roles, right? That are sometimes the blockers. They have to be open to listen to young people because they're not afraid, right? They've grown up with it. 
So it's just an interesting dynamic, I think, in organizations. But the technology going, yeah, I think that companies could go even faster, but you get that constraint um, by people that aren't that brave. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think you kind of by default named uh, an important combo or trifecta that you need there, right? You said you needed courageous people, you needed young people, and you also need leaders that are open to change. As simple as that message feels, I hope a lot of the manufacturing leaders listening to this walk away and say, hey, if I'm trying to get whatever technology or change across the finish line, here are three things I probably need to to make that happen. So super insightful. Uh, You know, I I have a follow-up question, kind of getting back on to the track of your story. You know, you didn't spend your whole career inside of a paper mill. In fact, you made a transition into the automotive world. Tell me what that experience was like. Yeah, it was really interesting because paper and pulp and paper are 24 by 7, right? You only shut them down a couple of years based on the contract requirements. Um, and so it's also interesting because you couldn't really touch things, right? Things are getting pushed around in pipes and everything like that. You could see the end product at the end of the reel of a paper machine, which was sort of cool. But moving over into auto, it was fascinating. I think it was really fascinating. And, and the reason why it's discrete manufacturing so you can actually go out and seeing things being made real time, all that kind of stuff. I think the other thing for me that was the shift that I really loved about the auto industry, I absolutely love the auto industry, right? It's the sexiest products, right? Cars, who, who doesn't love cars? Maybe there's a few people on the earth, but they're so exciting. You've got everything in the auto industry that you could want. You've got the hard sciences of basic research and development, right? Application to vehicles. You've got PR, you've got advertising. So it's wonderful. Um, But I guess you and I were talking about that thing about manufacturing. So if I look at my career, I spent 10 years at Scott Paper, three years at Kimberly Clark, and then three years in actually manufacturing um, for Garrett Turbocharging. And the thing I loved about growing up and having a foundation in manufacturing is it's it's just the greatest place to learn about trials how to get things done you can count things and it's just a, it's i just thought that was the best thing you know understand cost structures that has helped me that foundation as i moved into like business roles so i will always be grateful for my manufacturing background I have a question then based on something you told me uh, a couple weeks before this conversation. You made a comment that you said, the things that you learn in a plant, those things last forever. So I'm curious, based on what you just said, was that what you were meaning, kind of getting those business foundational advices? Oh, totally, right? I mean, every business is the same. I mean, if you think about the highest level, and I think that's the challenge, we all get lost in our own little silos, our own little functions. But it's to make money, right? And so you have to have profit. So you have revenue and costs. And I think the things that I carried from the plants, there's a couple things again, is one is understanding cost structure, right? Because plants are always underneath cost pressures, right? So you start learning about, hey, if I fix this, I can reduce my cost structure. It's all about cost. That's one piece. And then you can count stuff, right? You can figure out how you start looking at how do I reduce costs? So that's one piece that helps no matter where you go. And I've always carried that forward. The second piece is also about dealing with people. Nothing gets done in a plant without working with the operators, you know, the the service guys, the maintenance guys, leadership. And because you have to work at a team and you can quickly see your outcome of your efforts, right? You're building stuff, right? So every day you're building stuff. You can see those outcomes. So you learn skills about people. You learn skills about getting things done. You learn skills about cost reduction, how to look. And those things have been foundations that have helped me been successful all the way through my career, even as a business leader, all those things. And it's surprising to me. I mean, this is our manufacturing secrets as we're all talking manufacturing is how maybe ignorance too, how naive or unknowing, maybe there is some ignorance in office workers who have grown up in offices, whether they're thought workers, about those basic things that you learn in manufacturing, cost structures, how to, you know, how to, um, crazy things, how to put a um, ROI and how to sell a project, right? Because how do you get capital investment? So anyway, I will always be um, thankful for that career in manufacturing. 
One one of the things I heard as an overarching theme in your answer was manufacturing is tangible, right? You're making yes. things, you can count things. So as a result, you can see the impact of costs a little more, you know, physically, if you will, because you're looking at, hey, how much scrap can I reduce? Can I get more right. stuff through? And you can see the impact on cost more directly than you know, maybe say, you know, I've worked in the software world before, right? It might be a little more difficult to see that, but you really get your hands on things inside of the manufacturing facility, for example. Yeah. And the cycle time for improvement cycle time is faster in a plant, right? Because you can count that, right? Like, so today you're making on it, let's make something up. Like today we're making a hundred widgets and we put a plan together and then we can see within a week, two weeks, maybe a month that we're now at 120, right? What those constraints are. So that helps the learning process, I think, about, you know, um, learning and thinking processes of people that are working on that. Whereas if like, um, okay, I'll use my experience, like um, when I had uh, responsibility for sales in Central America and the Caribbean for Honda, I, whatever plans I put in, I wouldn't see results for like 18 months, 24 months, right? So you don't get that cycle to learn as fast. So that's what's great about manufacturing. Yeah, more of that instant or more real-time feedback you get inside yeah, of the absolutely. plant. So it's it's funny, we're kind of hinting at this next question a little bit that, hey, you got that foundation in manufacturing, right? You had a long career at Honda, but you made the jump over to Salesforce as well. I, I'm curious, how, what, how has that transition been? And maybe share one of the things that you learned from working in, let's say, the auto manufacturing industry to more the software side and how it impacts the auto industry. Yeah, so um, so I came to Salesforce. I retired from Honda. And then when I retired, it was the customer experience office and leading the digital transformation for Honda, uh, for Honda, Acura, motorcycles, power equipment. And I think what I learned, and it is a funny thing coming over to a software um, role. However, I'm an advisor role about the industry. But what I learned is the technology today is so capable to enable everything. So we have this technology that's progressing so quickly. And we have customer expectations driven by like, you know, all our experiences with Amazon or online shopping, all this kind of stuff where everything is personalized, right? Um, it's helping me. It knows me, the technology, right? These, you know, these different things I get. I'm quite a shopper as most women, right? But I get notifications, right? Hey, this thing that you were looking at is on sale or, hey, there's this new thing we think you'd like. So you get used to this where I can, at any time of the day or night, I can order stuff and get things. So we have this expectation by shoppers and then also young people, right? Gen, Gen Z that are all technology enabled for speed. And so what happens though is these traditional organizations like an auto manufacturer They've been around for 100 years. They've been built to drive efficiency from a functional viewpoint, from a silo perspective, right? So in these silos, they are all working towards that efficiency. But the world has shifted that uh, the customer has become the center of everything. So I think what I can bring from Honda and my experiences there is at a large enterprise to deliver customer experience that really is going to enable the customer to stay with you, make it easier so they love you even longer and loyalty, is that you have to learn how to work and create new muscles or new capabilities, whatever processes, to bring and work across the enterprise. Because the customer experiences like an OEM, um, they think that we're all the OEM, like the dealer, you know, service and all these things. But that's not really true. Because although we're all underneath a single umbrella, we all function independently. So that's what I brought to Salesforce, I think, is this ability to help other OEMs or others to start saying, it's like, hey, you're bound by your silo history. You have to keep that efficiency, but now you have to layer on this piece about how do we begin to work across the enterprise and really stop being, this sounds silly, but um, I think all businesses are narcissistic, right? We, we all want to make better profit and all that kind of stuff. So it's about us. It's not really about, rarely do we think about how does that customer experience us and how do we put ourselves in those shoes? So I think that's what I sort of bring to the software piece is the ability to help Salesforce, which is really building the customer 360s and all these capabilities 
to deliver what the customer really expects from an interaction viewpoint, to be able to help OEMs sort of see it from a different viewpoint. Maybe like let the narcissism like uh, screen come down a little bit and say, how do you really listen and look at yourself from a customer's viewpoint? Okay, that was long-winded. So sorry about that. That that was great. I've I've got a couple questions that I'll I'll ask as a result of that. In fact, you know, say we're back at the bistro, I'm probably about to order mm-hmm. my second glass of Bordeaux here right now because because <laughs> we've got a we've got a good conversation coming up after this because I want to talk about this customer centricity in the context of the connected car. But you just reminded me, you know, when you were at Honda, focused on digital transformation, we're talking about breaking down silos. You know, again, let's say we're having this conversation over a drink. Explain this to me in like simple terms. Um, what did digital transformation mean to you at Honda? What were you trying to accomplish? Because I feel like it's a big word that we throw a lot of buzzwords around with. But I'd love to understand, was the outcome, you know, customer centricity? Was it building in efficiencies? I'd love to hear, you know, what was digital transformation about in your efforts in a really simple fashion? Yeah, and that's a great piece because it is a buzzword, right? Digital transformation. So at Honda, we started a little bit different. We didn't start with digital transformation as our goal. What we started saying was, is that there's a lot of technology companies that were coming out and that were creating technology solutions to try to um, fix the pain points that customers have in the auto industry, right? Dealing with autos, whatever way they are. So what we sort of see is that this is a threat to Honda, right? That there's an opportunity for these third parties to get between us our de- and our dealers and sort of steal the customers in a way. So our view was like, how do we, the challenge that we put forth was, is we want to have the best customer experience in the industry. So that's where we started from. And I think many people do this. They start making like their customer journey, right? What goes on with the customer? And I think And I've seen many companies do this, and sometimes they're trying to do the ideal viewpoint. But the crazy thing is auto people typically don't buy cars like normal people, right? They don't because they've got ins. So that's a challenge. So what we started doing was basically mapping out the journey and all the pain points. And what we did is we had each silo because nobody is so complex. Nobody knows it all. They all came in and started saying each one. So we might have had the captive finance company. We had the service organization. We had the marketing organizations. We had the dealers come in. Where are pain points? So we started mapping this pain point stuff. So then really, we just sort of prioritized what are the pain points? And then the digital transformation came from how do... And a lot of it was pain points driven because one silo had the information and the other one didn't. So for example, simple example, um, a customer calls the call center for the product. Hey, my Civic is having this problem you know, all this kind of stuff. I'm really pissed off at you guys. And so the poor call center guy doesn't know that, hey, that customer, this is their fourth Honda. They don't even know that. Um, So they're going to treat them like, you know, no special treatment for, you know, really loyal customers. Or while that's going and the customer's mad at us, we're still sending marketing things to them. Hey, would you like to buy a new thing, right? So the pain points was because the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. So that's where the digital transformation started coming in is how do we use technology to get a, get a holistic viewpoint of that customer? And honestly, that's where I was a customer of Salesforce at Honda. And that was the goal is how do you get this customer 360 and we like to tease because a lot of times Salesforce will sell to each silo a customer 360. But reality, that enterprise view, you need to step back and have that holistic view across all the silos. All right, Chris, I've even forgot what your original question was. So no, you you nailed it. You you have no idea how much I loved this answer. And I'll add some context here for let's say the regular listeners of the show, because we try to demystify digital transformation on this show all the time, right? The idea of Having a conversation over a drink is to get real about the topics rather than get lost in the buzzwords. And what I heard from your answer was that you weren't trying to do digital transformation. You were trying to create a better customer experience. And by the way, the technology and digital transformation, if you will, were your vehicle for breaking down those silos and creating that more seamless experience. So I I addressed the audience on that one because I thought that was a really tangible example that 
when we're trying to make this topic more approachable, you shared exactly not only what your overarching goal was, but also how part of the goal was to break down silos in there as well. So a lot of great prescriptive information, I feel like, that you just gave us there, Vicky. Can I add one other thing, too? Because, you know, the manufacturing background is cost reduction, right? And so the other thing is, about this, we started finding that we had to break things down. But then we started looking at stuff. And Chris, is crazy, right? Because you don't look at your technology across holistically, right? You might look at it as silo. And as we got into looking at these pain points, we started finding out, well, this is, I'm probably telling this, but it's crazy. It's true. I bet you every organization, if you take an inventory of what you have, you'll find out that you have duplication, um, redundancies, and all this kind of stuff, because the budgeting process is aligned against the silos. So for example, I started seeing it because I had um, the marketing budget for both Honda and Acura. And both teams came to me. They wanted to find out, um, they wanted to see what the website traffic was or what somebody was doing on the website. So both brands, literally, they sit next to each other in the building. They came to me and both with two different solutions to solve the same problem with two different vendors. And so what we started seeing is that this is common across it. Like motorcycle had a solution for something, the same problem that Honda had a problem for the Acura. So when we started saying like, let's just take an inventory, we found crazy things. Like we had one, two, four brands that were selling things. We had seven, seven e-commerce platforms, right? And so you don't ever see that because you're not looking at it. So the other thing with technology or just in this thing about making customers, the customer experience better because, you know, customers were going to them. We had like 40 different websites for customers to go to. We started looking at that and started saying like, okay, it's adding costs. It's adding complexity. IT is up to their ears and using all their efforts to keep these redundant systems going. So then that was another way to, as we worked on a journey to improve the customer experience, using technology to eliminate, right? How do you get one solution or maybe two solutions to these common problems versus six, seven? And that started reducing the cost structure too. I mean, it does, it don't turn the light bulb on. I mean, it don't turn the light switch right away. But it started that path also. So that was a fascinating thing to me too. As we try to improve the customer experience, we found ways to reduce costs and make things go faster too. It's funny, that goes right back to the manufacturing side of the things, the things you learned in the plan, reducing cost, going faster, this time by reducing the systems that you had in place for right. e-commerce and all those things. We'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsor. This episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour is sponsored by Reuters Events, Supply Chain USA 2023, taking place May 17th and 18th in Chicago, Illinois. Because you're a listener of this podcast, you can get $350 off your price of registration. So over the past few years, everyone in the manufacturing industry has experienced supply chain woes. Parts not showing up, lead times getting pushed out further than you can imagine. While the supply chain might have been an afterthought in the past, a well-orchestrated supply chain is now fundamental to business success. Supply Chain USA is bringing together the end-to-end -to -end supply chain to share new best practices and strategies so that you can turn supply chain from a cost center to a value generator. This is your chance to be one of over 900 executives from Fortune 500 retailers, manufacturers, and forward-thinking logistics organizations that are shaping the future of supply chain operations. To register, go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash supplychainusa to claim your spot today. And don't forget to use the code HAPPYHOUR350 for $350 off your ticket price. Again, that's Reuters Events Supply Chain USA 2023, taking place May 17th and 18th in Chicago, Illinois. We hope to see you there. And now, back to today's episode. Well, we've covered a lot of ground so far. We're going to switch gears a little bit here because uh, we're talking a lot about customer experience, right? And you recently released at Salesforce the Trends in Automotive Report. For anyone listening, I'll link up to that in the show notes so it's easy to access. Um, but, you know, as I was looking at ways, how do we talk about this? How do we talk about some of the trends? I thought it might make sense to start with talking about a software-enabled vehicle or a connected car 
from the customer's standpoint, right? What is what does this experience look like for a person that's purchasing or owning the car? Just to paint the overarching picture, and then we can go into some of the details around the data and things like that after that. Okay. So what I'm going to do is sort of paint a picture of the future, right? Because like I said earlier, is that people already have some experiences, you know? Um, some people are already getting over their over-the-air updates for like their maps, built-in maps and their Navi systems. Um, there's some of the things, but they're one-way, right? Um, there's some things that right now are two ways, like this SOS, if you want to go back and forth. But in the future, as the car becomes more and more connected, which is coming with EVs particularly, um, the experience in the car is going to be is that somebody's AI, right? Machine learning. It's not going to be, you know, some person looking over your shoulder while you're driving, but the technology is going to be basically monitoring your car for functionality, right? Things like DTCs or diagnostic trouble, um, trouble shooting codes might come up. So it might be things like you're driving along and you know that the, the dreaded DDC that you get like an engine light DCC, right? Um, that won't happen because the car is basically sending things back and then there's being analytics happening off board and then sending back to you about, hey, this is what's happening. There's some in integration, things like that. So you'll be informed from functionality. There might be things where the OEM is sending back to the car saying, hey, we've been monitoring your driving you know, places, but here's some tips. You're braking too hard. You can, you know, increase the life of your brake pads and reduce your fuel, you know, fuel consumption by driving more slowly. So there might be things like that. There'll be also things, as you've probably seen, like BMW announced, like they were going to create a service for heated seats, right? Okay, maybe that's a little extreme, but these services that are going to come back, um, they're still, people are still trying to figure out what people us as consumers of automobiles would be willing to pay for. But what kind of services can you have on? So think about this. One of these connected vehicles might be is like, say, not today, so don't everybody, but somewhere down the line is maybe to make it extreme, maybe an OEM makes one single version that has every kind of feature on the vehicle, right? Those of us that are manufacturing, think about how glorious that would be, right? From an efficiency perspective, one model, everything's featured on. And then what happens is the customer buys that car and based on how much they want to put in it at one time. So say you're right out of college, you don't have a lot of money. You want to buy, let's say a seven, I'm just making some stuff up. I don't know, a seven series BMW. But you can only afford the entry. But then as you grow in your earnings, you can start turning features on. That's another way connected vehicles could be. Um, so like it might be stuff too is where, hey, I only want this feature for a short period of time. Let's say parking assist. I only need it when I'm in a city because I live in the suburbs, but I'd really like to turn it on for the city for parallel parking. You turn it on like that. So it'll be a lot more engagement back and forth. And I think um, the reality is imagination has to start being generated to start looking at those pieces. A lot of good things there. I'll, I'll say that the first thing, this sounds like car as a service, right? We're turning on yeah, a different totally. future. And and when I, when I, from what I understand about as a service models as well, right? Like we're talking... You're basically making the same trim level, right? So you don't have trim level one, two, three, four. Definitely some cost efficiencies there, manufacturing efficiencies, but you're turning on the services, if you will. And you know, one of the ones that that stuck out in your answer was, I would love to have a check engine light with context, right? That's what I heard you say, yes. where it's not just like that. Yeah, <laughs> that, that dreaded check engine light, where it's like, great, I, something's wrong with my car, and I don't know what it is. Now you get the information that says what that is. I'm sure many of our listeners out there are um, breathing a sigh of relief if that's one of the potential things that that could come down the line. You know, one of the other features that I've already seen um, some of the OEMs, I can't remember what it was, and Tesla does it too, but it's, you know, there's so many rules and regulations from uh, NHTSA and EPA and all this kind of stuff, right? So an OEM must make a certain, you know, a grade to match, you know, their cafe standards and all these things. But I saw it was interesting because I, I don't remember whether it was Tesla or somebody else, but basically they were, and so basically there's an engine map, right? That you're operating the engine in. But there was a feature that you could buy, which was downloaded basically the connected car that could change your engine map to give you more like um, more torque, more power and all this kind of stuff. And you could buy it and therefore 
you could enjoy that more, the, the higher performance thing, but it didn't hurt the OEM's um, requirements for cafe because it's after the fact and you chose that. So there's things like that too that'll be available about driving modes and things like that. So I think it's going to be an interesting time. And and I, I do want to talk a bit about the presence here, the present here as well, because we we painted a picture of the future, right? But like you've been saying, some of these things are already in place today. You know, I'm curious, and you can answer from your perspective or from the report, what progress are companies making in providing more of this digital uh, customer experience in the automotive space, if you will? What are they providing? I think you're... You know, it's really interesting. It's um, there's a lot happening about that digital experience, and it's happening along their traditional silos still, right? So, like for example, um, and let me give you a couple of them. So, one might be um, like digital retailing, like buying a car online, right? OEMs are trying to help dealers do that, so you can buy from home and all these kind of things, and then the dealer can complete the sale. Or dealers themselves are using digital retailing, so selling tools, and then actually selling vehicles online. So you've got digital tools being used in both of those different places for the same sort of activity. You've got, um, I love some of this stuff too, is there's captive finance companies now. So say Toyota Financial Services or Honda Financial Services that are basically getting information back about your vehicle, you know, your miles. And then they're saying, it's like, hey, you know, Chris, your lease is coming up, right? And you're running at a pace of you're eating up your miles too fast. Would you like to buy more miles? So it's automating that and they're knowing you and sort of preventing you from a big surprise at the end. Um, I think the other things too I, I really like are um, like when you're online on a website, a tier one website from an auto guy, you know, some of the digital tools there are helping you, right? So it's remembering you, even if you're an unknown, it's bringing you back to the page where you were before. Um, it's trying to give you information even before you reveal who you are and sort of tracking you around saying, hey, you might be interested in this. So I think there's some great stuff there. I think also you're going to see some OEMs too about even if you put in a lead, they will now um, send more information to the dealer so that you don't have to start from ground zero about your search again and starting that conversation from ground zero. So you're seeing it pop up everywhere, this digitization. The challenge, as I said, is like in these long, you know, historic hundred year old companies is pulling those and seaming it together. And then also the challenge about holistically is because the dealer is like an independent business person, right? So they have their own company. And so even that makes it harder because the customer experiences, you know, buying a car through both the OEM and the dealer, but they're two entities and that has to figure out, that'll take time to figure out how, how the world comes seamlessly together. I'm going to use a pun here. Let's look under the hood okay. a little bit, right? Oh, like, all right. <laughs> um, how do we, uh, how do we start getting this data to bring this experience to life? Right. I'm sure. Like, what are the initiatives people need to take to to make this a reality? I think this is always, um, you know, how you were saying digital transformation is the buzzword. You know, getting the data right. We all have to collect data. I think there's some. Um, I think a lot of times it's not so efficient the way that we're thinking, like we just have to collect data, right? I think the real point is that we need to understand what that, what is the customer experience that we're trying to deliver or what's the customer pain point we're trying to overcome? And then I think really as organizations, you have to think about what data do I need to fix that, right? To solve that issue. And then you have to go back and say, where is that data source, right? Who has that data? And honestly, there's so much data in the auto industry, it's crazy. So I think you have to sort of start thinking about that and then be able to connect the data. And I think that's where technology is wonderful, right? Because, um, you know, things even like Salesforce's MuleSoft makes it easy with APIs or even going back into traditional things to pull that data together to then enable and enable something to happen. So I think for me, the excitement and um, I have to feel like honored coming to Salesforce is those technology tools, the software tools are there to be able to automate a lot of that stuff, pull the data, create like a customer journey, whether it's a communication or engagement journey and make it happen automated. Because the reality is most of the things that we've built in the auto industry with the customers have not been automated. There's a lot of people looking at things. So there's this new opportunity to create 
new experiences, eliminate age-old pain points by using that. So that's one thing, the technology. However, how we work together across those functional silos is going to be another challenge. So you can already see like, um, like dealers and OEMs, right? There's been this thing like the OEMs really haven't sent a lot of information to the dealers. The dealers have only sent back information to the OEMs, which are real specific, like um, uh, the RDRs, which are, uh, which are they? Um, retail, I can't even remember what the RDR stands for, but um, basically it's the sale of the vehicle, the information. But now, to enable that customer experience, these guys have to work better together, right? So there's already new agreements about data sharing. Um, and so the OEMs are looking at the dealers for more information. And I, every time I talk to a dealer, I'm like, you guys should demand more information from the OEM, right? It should be tit for tat because that shared information will be a better experience, will, will enable better experiences for customers. Uh, and, and I think some of this is in the report, right? How many people are on this journey, taking this initiative, asking for that data? Is it half the industry, less than half? What are you seeing? Well, it depends on what, what bucket of the industry that you're looking for. Right. So I think the OEMs are the biggest ones, right? Because bigger costs, huge, right? They have to figure this out. So one piece they're looking at is the data and trying to link things first from a manufacturing viewpoint, right? I mean, the supply system, right? With all the upsets with the COVID and all that kind of stuff, hugely looking at how do we digitize information and engagement and sharing across the supply base. Right, because that rolls all the way through about what you're going to sell. So OEMs are looking that way, and then they're also looking towards the you know the customer's viewpoint. So lots of data with that. Um, so that's what's happening there. So I think all the OEMs are working towards that. Now the dealers, right? In the U.S., for new car dealers, there's like eighteen thousand six hundred dealers, new car dealers, right? That doesn't even add people that are doing like RVs or motorcycles or used cars. There's a continuum, just like anybody, where everybody's on the spectrum, right? There are some really progressive dealers, particularly in the big metro areas where competition is fierce. Maybe not right now in COVID, right? Because they're selling everything they have, but it, it will come back to some, some standard of normalcy. Those guys are very progressive, very digitally enabled, very astute, always trying to get, the, you know, the, get one up on the guy that's 12, 12 miles away from him. So we're we're nearing the end of our conversation and I've got, you know, a couple kind of wrap up questions, forward looking questions, right? We talked about what the future might look like. You know, I, as I was looking at your automotive report, right, we're talking about how people that are investing in electric vehicles right now, companies that are investing in that, hey, they, they're probably going to see a hit in their profits over the coming years, right? That's just one thing that jumped out. Whether it's that or something else, I mean, what are the things, let's say, automotive manufacturers are going to be need to be thinking about here in the coming months, years, et cetera? Yeah, I think the reality, and maybe people don't understand this about the profit piece, you know, EVs, um, one is you're using, the OEMs are using a huge amount of capital to invest, right? EV plants, battery plants all this kind of stuff, while they're continuing to make their regular vehicle, ICEs, right, internal combustion engines, they still need to manufacture that. So you think about that, that's almost laying on a totally separate business. So huge capital investment. The other thing, and I'll quote um, Tavares from Stellantis, he has publicly said that um, to build an EV, actually the parts, all that, is, is 30 to 50% more cost than a traditional vehicle, okay? So we all know, even though prices for cars have been going up, an OEM can't drive that price up so far, right? For MSRP or whatever they're going to sell an EV, 30 or 50% more. They can't do that. You already see some of them are pushing the prices up, but this is going to be the biggest market share uh, grab by the OEMs since like SUVs came to market, right? So they're going to have a lot of competitive pressures for pricing. So even if they had to be able to price up a little bit, they're going to be wrapping all those electric vehicles with $1,000 bills. So their profit is going to be compressed, right? So that's one piece. Um, so the other piece, though, is both for OEMs and both for dealers. A big portion of their revenue stream is from parts, right? Parts of service. And the crazy thing is EVs have half the number of parts as internal combustion engine vehicles. So right there, 
there goes half your business for parts replacement, right? They don't have the parts. So that's the impress. So the OEMs are looking at, holy goodness, uh, where's, my, where's my revenue streams and where's my profit streams going to be? They're all being compressed, okay? And so that's why you're hearing even more information about connected vehicles. How do we get these revenue streams? Because OEMs have to find something to offset the loss of the revenue stream from, you know, underwater selling at a loss for EVs to get the market share, and then also the loss of parts, you know, service parts. So that's what's trying to transform this world about the automotive industry. I like to say for myself, from a dealer perspective, you know, the dealers have that relationship from a service perspective with their new car owners. And out of the trends report, here's the shocking thing is like, I don't remember, it was 65% or 70% of all customers, vehicle customers, stop servicing their vehicles with the dealers at the end of the warranty period. So if you think EVs are coming, less parts, if I'm a dealer, I'm going to try to figure out how to make a love relationship with my customers, ICE customers in the next three to five years so they don't leave me. So I have that kind of stream because otherwise, you think about it, I think all of us are going to hold on to an ICE, right? I mean, you think about Florida with hurricane, right? You can't plug your car in when there's no electricity. So you're going to hold on to something just from a security net. We as an industry are letting all that supply stuff going into the independent repair facilities. So anyway, that's my sort of talked about saying from an industry, we need to make better relationships with our service customers. And I also think technology can enable that too. All right. I don't know where I was. I was all over the place there with that, Chris, but you're, that helps. you're good. It's, it's, it's my job as the host to listen and try to <laughs> tie it all together. So I'm, I'm going to make my attempt at that here. For, uh, by the way, for anyone listening, ICE, internal combustion engine, if you need an acronym check, if, if you're driving and just trying to figure out what that is. Um, the other thing I'll say is we've been talking a lot about automotive, right? But I feel like he gave some really good advice there at the end for it, really any manufacturing company needing to be paying attention to what's coming ahead and figure out how to evolve your business model, right? I think what you were just saying about how an EV has half as many parts as an internal combustion vehicle. You know, someone needs to be thinking of, okay, if that part of my business is going to start to shrink, what are other things I can be doing? Like, you know, this car as a service model, if you will, to help build up some of those revenues. Or how do I start building that multi-year relationship between the dealer and the customer now? So that way I'm not in a bad position three years down the line when this is full steam ahead. So I thought you gave some great advice in that capacity. That that's what I heard as as we're here at the end of the interview. Is there anything you wish I would have asked you that that we didn't talk about yet? Maybe the only thing is you have all these market, you know, drivers that are happening, right? But I think as a manufacturer or selling things and all this technology coming in is like, yeah, everything's driving that. But the real thing is think about the future customer, right? What are these for auto? Pre-COVID, the average age of a new car buyer was like 28, you know? Gen Z, the oldest ones now, might be 24, right? So they're coming. So I think the real piece is like, don't be so arrogant from our own viewpoint about this is the way that we've always done it, but look at how those future customers really want to be engaged and work through and try to solve the business to make them happy because, hey, Gen Z... There's a lot of them coming. And same thing as millennials and replacing the boomers. So really, how do you focus on that? So that's my only piece. Don't forget about the customer. They should be at the center of everything. Yep. And, and I should, I, I want to make sure I give a quick plug for this at the end. Is that what automotive cloud helps this industry do? Can you share a little bit about that and what Salesforce is doing in, in that capacity? Because I do want to make sure as we wrap up, we talk directly, hey, what does Salesforce do in the automotive space? I want to make sure everyone understands that as they as we walk out of this discussion. Yeah, I'm totally happy to do that. Um, so Salesforce launched Automotive Cloud in the fall. And the great thing is, um, like the stuff I was trying to achieve at Honda, it's pulling that together, um, but it's more about specifically for auto. The challenge for auto is that we have unique things. We have VINs, we have model years, we have all these, you know, industry-specific things that Salesforce hadn't had. And so every individual customer that was in the automotive, you know, environment basically had to build that data structure, 
you know, specialized. And so now what Salesforce has done is basically built that for customers. So you can get to leveraging AutoCloud faster. Um, and the nice thing, it pulls all these together on a platform basis. So it just means for automakers or whoever uses it in the systems, suppliers, whatever, is that that engagement layer that you need to talk to customers, to bring data across, to get insights, it's on a platform. So your speed to market is really fast. And as those of us that have been in the auto industry and manufacturing, you know, innovation is not something we do well. And we don't get a lot of money to invest in innovation from our technology viewpoint. With automotive cloud, Salesforce is doing their typical way that three year, every three, sorry, three times per year, they basically add capability to the platform that comes just with this, with the um, subscription. So that's the exciting thing. And so it's just started and it's going to go lots of places. I think it's really exciting that um, that value that can be had really quickly. And I think that the, the thing about the Salesforce thing that I always loved was this getting that picture, that full picture of the customer so you can engage the customer. That's what I think they're best at. So I'm excited about that. I love it. And it, I think that really ties a lot of the themes we discussed throughout our conversation together. For everyone out there listening, if you want to learn more about Automotive Cloud, if you want to look at the trends in automotive report that we've been talking about, or if you want to connect with Vicky, I'll have links to all those over at the show notes page. And with that, I just wanted to say, Vicky, thanks so much for jumping on the show today. This was a fun learning experience. It's Chris. It was fun. And the wine was pretty good, wasn't it? Agreed. Yes, that's the most (laughs) important part here at Manufacturing Happy Hour. Made the conversation flow perfectly, even if it was only theoretical wine. You got it. Cheers. Hey, thanks for listening, and thank you to Salesforce for making today's episode possible. Thank you to Vicky for jumping on the show. As always, like I said, if you want to learn more, if you want to access the Trends in Automotive report, you can do that over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 130 for episode 130. Of course, as we wrap up, I want to give a shout out to Reuters Events for sponsoring this episode. Hey, their Supply Chain USA 2023 event is May 17th through 18th in Chicago, Illinois. I'll be there leading some of the panel discussions. And if you want to join me as well, hey, you can register at a $350 discount. Just use the code HAPPYHOUR350 when signing up for the event. Again, that's Reuters Events Supply Chain USA 2023. We hope to see you there. One last thing, call to action. Hey, if you liked this episode, I mentioned it at the start, but those five-star ratings and reviews over at iTunes, over at Spotify, those definitely help us out. Please consider taking the time to do that. It could be as easy as just hitting that five-star button on either one. In the case of iTunes, you can leave a review. doesn't need to be longer than a couple sentences, but it certainly helps us out. Again, thank you in advance if you take the time to do that. With that, that's a wrap for this week. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.